We've got to get Lehi out of Jerusalem. With all these stories and all these, uh, these other notes and things, I turn and read that first chapter of First Nephi, and it's miraculous. The condensation, the prose, the simplicity, the directness. He has the four qualities, as I told you, Matthew Arnold attributes to Homer. Book of Mormon has them. I don't know anybody else that has them. But still, if you were to be asked on a test, for example, uh, what is the significance of the linkage letters for the Book of Mormon, they're immensely uh, important. They're contemporary records, first-hand records, not records that have come down to us, the original documents themselves. And they name names. They don't name Jeremiah. It's interesting, Jeremiah is never named in the Bible except uh, in the book of Jeremiah. At, in Jeremiah's time, the person they were all consulting as a prophet was Huldah, was Lady Huldah. She was the prophetess. It's very interesting, but he was, like Lehi, he was an amateur prophet. Actually, you can see he's engaged in, in business dealings and things like that, moves around a lot and so forth, preaches as he goes, and the same thing happens with Lehi. It comes, it's very clear there in that first chapter. But it mentions Uriah, who's a common friend of them both, and uh, it mentions some other people and what went on, and it mentions various places. And we had gotten, incidentally, uh, this, uh, this article from which I am citing here, uh, they're leaving, and this is so close to the Book of Mormon. The situation that's going on, it's very dramatic, it's very intense, and it's, very, it's quite clear in both, both documents. But here, you see, we have something with which we can check the Book of Mormon story step by step. And uh, so we go on. Lakish letters center on the activities of the prophets. They're causing grave concern to the government. They're subversives. And, of course, we read in Nephi 1 and 4 here, that same year came many prophets prophesying unto the people that they must repent or the great city of Jerusalem be destroyed. Now that, you see, was subversion. That would never do. So they're after them. And, uh, and Torxiner, who the editor, I wrote this before, the editor of these Lakish letters. I should write that again. And he says, it must certainly be admitted that there was more than one prophet at this time. There were prophets circulating around. Israel usually has a chief prophet at one time, suppose like Isaiah or Jeremiah. Jeremiah wasn't even the chief one at this time. Uriah was an important man. He'd been perhaps going longer than Jeremiah had. And uh, as I say, the prophetess Huldah, she was the center of attention if they, if they wanted the big stuff. And uh, as we, uh, well, he says here, he says, uh, the central figure, of course, Jeremiah, but it's only known by chance. We know even about him where he's not even mentioned in the Book of Kings. It's the prophetess Huldah, an otherwise quite unknown figure whom Josiah consults. Well, that's Josiah back in his days, but now we're down in the time of Zedekiah. But now, we're told that uh, Uriah's religious influence had been great, and Uriah prophesied, says Jeremiah 26 and 4, according to, Uriah prophesied according to the words of Jeremiah. So he's spreading Jeremiah's message is what he's doing. And Lehi does the same thing, we get that. So this is, this is the Jeremiah party, you might say. And they're not popular, remember. Nobody wants them there with this doom and gloom. They're running from the police everywhere, yes? You, keep, you tell us that uh, Jeremiah was a little-known prophet, and this prophetess was well-known. When, when you say the word prophet to me, I kind of conjure up the hierarchy in the churches we have today. No, 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 no. That has it wasn't like that no, no. at all back then? Uh, as Brigham Young says, prophecy is not an office, it's a gift. Some people have it and some don't. And we're told that anyone who has a testimony of Jesus Christ has the gift of prophecy. He's received that. Various people have it. But you have no right prophesying for the church. There are various people who have the gift very strongly. Uh, no president of the church ever had it more strongly than Eliza R. Snow. She made some marvelous prophecies, but uh, she doesn't uh, 
speak to the world and to the church. This is given as a special gift, as a special boon, like healing and so forth. And, uh, some interesting stories on that. So he was a prophet and had this particular gift, and he goes around, and who is uh, authorizing? Lehi, you notice how he takes up the, uh, the activity later on. And the Lakish letter number six tells us, the words of the prophets are dangerously undermining morale, both military and people. Behold, the words are not good, both to weaken the hands of the country and the city everywhere. And Jeremiah 38 and says the very same thing that it weakened the hands, mentioned that before, of the people, of the, uh, of the soldiers, uh, and as well as the hands of the of all the people, country and city. And this is what we're told in the Book of Mormon, because these many prophets came prophesying, doom, they must repent. So this is the trouble they go on. And Nephi says, there are many prophets, and as Lehi went forth, notice, he prayed to the Lord even on behalf of his people, in the fifth verse already, boy, things move fast in that first chapter. <laughs> in reply to his prayer, he received a vision which sent him out to join the prophets. He says, my people, uh, my father went forth among the people and began to prophesy. Eighteenth verse of the first chapter. As a result of this vision, you see what happened. He wasn't a prophet before, but then he joined the prophets. He went forth among the people. Notice every mention of the prophets here says that they're discouraging the people, that they're spreading dissent and, and uh, well, repentance among the people. That's worrying the ruling party, of course. It makes them look bad. To, and began to prophesy and to declare unto them his vision. Well, of course, he got into real trouble then, as you know. And then... For behold, as he tell, tells us before, in the, along in the seventh chapter, when Nephi knows by revelation, for behold, they have rejected the prophets, and Jeremiah have they cast into prison. Well, this is not by revelation, he knows it's by the news. They've sought to take the lawyer of my life and my father, insomuch they have driven him out of the land. So such is the situation. And Uriah, we find out from these these Lakish letters and so forth, as Troxina says, Uriah, they have hidden in the hills of western Judah for a long time. See, Lehi and his family went out and and hid. They didn't hid long. They, after three days, they moved down the coast. But, they, uh, but the brothers went and hid in the caves, as you know, in Jerusalem. And as you know, many of you have been there, I'm sure, around Jerusalem and that whole area, the limestone cave, is just peppered with caves, wonderful caves, all over the place. Right up to Jerusalem, there are caves everywhere. Cave of Machpel and all the famous caves. And there are hundreds of caves. After all, uh, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls have been found in as many as 300 different places. There are caves all over the place including the huge cave of Ma'araba, which is much bigger than this room here, in which they found hundreds of documents. And just in a few miles from Jerusalem, and nobody knew of their existence until quite recently. Well, come to them. This is the second great find that has direct bearing on the Book of Mormon. But uh, he says, may have hidden in the hills of western Judea. And so we find Lehi doing the same thing. And, uh, and Uriah's story is being told. Now, this is very interesting here in the as Troxina points out, only as a parallel to Jeremiah's not less dangerous position. Jeremiah, uh, Uriah's story is a parallel. They're both doing the same things. He decides where you get your characteristic, uh, your repeated scenario and so forth. Well, that's exactly what Lehi says. It's a parallel to Jeremiah's. That's what his, brother, what, what his son says. He says, they put him into prison. They've cast my father out. And so, like Uriah's story, his is a parallel to Jeremiah's not less dangerous position. And so we can add Lehi to this as a thoroughly typical figure of the time. Then the name Yahoo and so forth. Uh, I'll pass the Dead Sea Scroll stuff. I'll mention that later. 
Now, this is a national calamity, of course, in the background, there's the darkening skies and so forth. But this is concerned with re relatively narrow circles of friends, these letters are. Uh, and you see groups working together, uh, little circles. We talk, uh, read about clandestine flights from the city in both stories, both Book of Mormon and here. Remember, it's very family stuff, going back, talking to Laban and so forth. And uh, involving both friends and family. Nephi and his brethren go back to town to persuade Ishmael, a friend of the family who had his daughters, his own family, come down and join us. He gets Ishmael, he gets Zoram, the servant of Laban. They go, they go up to strike a deal with Laban, who is a, knew them. He knew the boys when they came there, because, and he knew they had this great wealth. He, he got it from them, they brought it up and showed it to him as far as that goes. But they found out in the plates, remember, that they were related to Laban, the same thing. So we have this sort of aristocracy in the town, and this is where the trouble is. And it's very clear, clearer in the book of Jeremiah than anywhere else, so that it was long believed that it was only a few of the chief families that were taken away into Babylon. We know it's very different today. He took everybody except that small group of poor people, a relatively small group. And so it's the same thing. Nephi and his brethren go back, and they, they begin to split up right off. The first time they went on their first mission to get the brass plates, they, they split up then, you see. And uh, Laman and Lemuel and the two daughters later, when the two daughters of Ishmael join them, they take sides of the family, Laman and Lemuel and the two daughters of Ishmael, they want to go back. They want to give up the whole operation. They said, we're fools to leave Jerusalem. Remember, he says, the people of Jerusalem were a righteous people, for they kept the law of Moses. And Lehi answers them and says, the Nephi says this, the same thing. He, he uh, says, if they had been righteous, do you think the former inhabitants of this, uh, this land, if they'd been righteous, the Lord would have allowed our ancestors to move in here and drive them out? No, he said. It was because they were unrighteous. And he says, that's exactly what's happening today. He talks about the Arabs. When they're going through Arab country there, he says, do you think those people have been righteous? It would have happened. So it's the same thing happened here. And so well, here's what they say, actually, the 17th chapter. We know that the people of Jerusalem are a righteous people. They kept the statutes and judgments of the Lord. They are a righteous people, and our Father has judged them. And they get so prejudiced, they, they plan even to... to uh, to murder their father, they get a chance. Especially disgruntled having to defer to their father in a very interesting quality, and this is another thing we have mentioned in the Lankish letters, the mention of a pikkeach. Uh, this is found in, in uh, Alway. Pikkeach, it's a hard agent. A pikkeach is a person who sees things that others do not see, see sharp-sighted. It means very, very sharp-sighted is pikkeach. Here we told the man of prophetic calling, we were uh, one of the prophets they're, they're trying to catch. It's not Uriah, somebody else here. Uh, he is a man of prophetic calling and he is a pikea. He's ha pikea. Well, give it the definite article. He is the pikea, the sharp seer. That is, he's a man who sees something that other people don't see, but it is real. And th such people were held in suspicion then. And this is what Torxiner says. They looked down upon them as being visionary and see what Laman and Lemuel say about their father. Well, you have it here. It's called, Dr. said, this means the open-eyed or the visionary man. He underlines the visionary. The seer, quote, the man whose eyes God has opened to see the things that other people do not see. The followers of the prophets, this was the highest term of praise, but for his critics, it was a term of derision, you see. And this is what the brethren say to Nephi, already in the second chapter, right at the beginning of the second chapter, they did murmur many things against my father because he was a visionary man, using exactly the same word. They weren't going to follow him. He was a pikea, just like these other prophets that he knew. 
and a visionary man had led them out of the land of Jerusalem to lead the land, leave the land of their inheritance and their gold and their silver and their precious things. And this they said he had done because of the foolish imaginations of his heart. See, they wouldn't believe a prophet. He, he was a pikeah, and that's what they accused him of being visionary. And these are exactly the qualities that Lehi uh, reverences and treasures, and he, he has them himself. The, uh, well, in 2 Kings, we read where Elijah asked the Lord to open the, the eyes of certain servants that are with him, and he opens them, and the word is pikeah again, and then they see that there are hosts standing by that didn't know they were there at all. See, they're on a different level. You can understand how that is, uh, people who watch... Uh, um, Star Trek and things like that know that you can disembody and appear in other places and that things can be uh, there, there are other dimensions and, and other wavelengths and things like that well that's what a became he sees something on another wavelength you can't see at all but it's there and because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't there anyway but the brethren thought so and this is an eloquent passage uh, which uh, Torxiner sums it up the Lakish letters reflect the mind, the struggles, the sorrows, the feelings of ancient Judah. Notice it's the family's high feelings, talking about murder, accusing their father, their brother calling them down, they get ready, they beat him up, remember, and the angel comes and tells them to stop doing it, and all sorts of things. Then they humble themselves and go and ask their father's pardon, and then next thing you know, they're, they're murmuring again. Well, this is typical of those people. Do you read the news about Lebanon, the Near East today? It's, it's that way all the time, isn't it? The, uh, just like this Starkey here. He was making a peaceful vision from, uh, from just 25 miles back from Lachish, back to Jerusalem to bring some stuff. And he was stopped in the road by some Arabs uh, who wanted what he had and took it and murdered him just like that. So this is what goes on, not a safe country to be in. I had a terrible experience in Sidon once, but uh, I won't go into that. The, uh, the mind, the struggles, the sorrows, the feeling of ancient Judas. The emotions run so high. Even greater extent, when Nephi, the family, spit along political lines. And if the situation of Uriah parallels that of Jeremiah, even more closely does it parallel that of Lehi when we learn from the letters, we're quoting again from the Lakish letters, a warning from the prophet to one of his friends who is apparently in the same danger as he is, himself is. It is therefore a prophet fleeing from his home and his friends, a prophet wanted by the military authorities. Now, the, uh, we all saw the sender of nearly all the letters was a high military officer. It's a very interesting that Josh we talked about, Yahush or ja Josh, you can call him that. Yahush is the way it's usually rendered, Yahush. He was the man who was going to try Yehoshua of uh, Kiryat Yarim for treason. And because he had let, he had tipped Uriah off and let him escape to Egypt. They fetched him back to Palace and Philemon. But the funny thing is that Yaush was a good friend of Uriah himself. He didn't want to have Uriah killed. So what position does it put him in? This is the situation we find in the Book of Mormon all the way through here, and we can run into these split loyalties ourselves. See, the essence of tragedy is not the good guys against the bad guys. It's not black against white at all. It's the incompatibility of two good things. You should see the theme in the Greek plays. Good production. So wonderful. Uh, that they're about Orestes, they're about Oedipus and Orestes, both the same thing. What makes it really tragical? What, why is the case of Orestes so tragic? Well, his father was murdered, so he's bound to avenge the murder of his father. He's bound by a sacred oath to avenge the murder. He must do it. But the murder of his father was his mother. He's also bound not to kill his mother. It's not good to do that. What's he supposed to do? Well, he solves the problem, as all of us would, by going stark raving mad. It's too much for him, you see. 
he must avenge his father, and he can't kill his mother, so what can he do? So he goes mad. So what do you do in a case like that? You see, this, this, uh, this stumps uh, Eskis. This is back in the other plays, but it's not these either. It's Eskis. It stumps him. He has the solution, and they always leave it hanging. This is what happens. They, he goes to the, to the hill of the Areopagus, where Paul preached his sermon. He goes to the hill of the Areopagus, where there's another of those caves from the most ancient, archaic times. You see, it's the spirit of the earth, and so they used to go there and have a trail. And the jury, the 12 good men and true in long black robes, just as they still wear in England. Uh, the, well, judges still wear the black robes, and for murders they put on black hoods and so forth. But the judges are supposed to judge him, the 12. And so how do they judge? The only way they can, six against six. Six say he was innocent because he couldn't help it, and six say he was guilty because he had to do it. He was guilty for killing his mother. He did it, you know. And six say he wasn't guilty because he was avenging his father. So what do you do in a case like that? It's deadlock. The only thing you can have is a deus ex machina. Athena, a statue of Athena there, suddenly comes to life. Athena descends from heaven in a, in a basket, a machine. That's the machina, you see, this machina. And she casts the final vote, casting the black pebbles as against the white pebbles, the black for death, the white for life. So she, the only, the, the moral is that the problem can only be solved by direct intervention from heaven. God must intervene in some way or another. So Athena comes and she casts the deciding vote, which is, of course, for acquittal. He's innocent. And, uh, and he gains his sanity back, and, the, and the, uh, the last play was called the, the Furies becomes the Humanities, which means the blessed ones, the, the favored ones, the one who So they change their identity from Furies to Humanities. And this is it. This is the same situation in Lehi's family. There was something to be said on both hands. Um, brother said, uh, we have to respect these people. They're living the law of Moses very strictly. They're going to church and all that sort of thing. And Nephi says, that isn't enough, that doesn't count. So what's going to happen? And their father's visionary, it's a great to be visionary, but they're not going to follow him. So this superior Yaush, who had been ordered to investigate this prophet who'd escaped, appears to be on the best of terms with the king, but still both men still respect the prophet. Remember, the king respects the prophet, and he brings him in for secret consultations and says, don't let the people find out about this, don't let the princes find out about this, the Sarim, but uh, tell me, how's it going to be? And uh, then he doesn't like the news that, uh, that Jeremiah gives him. Their attitude toward him and their, notice this, what Torxian said, says their hearts ache that they should be responsible for his destruction. They have to do it, but uh, it's terrible that they have to do it. And this is the situation we may find ourselves in from time to time, you know. And in both dramas, have, both sides have ties to the Egyptian party. Lehi supports the anti-Egyptian party, and that's a strange thing. It's a strange thing also that the prophet Uriah is fleeing to Egypt. He's not fleeing to Babylonia. He's been supporting the Babylonian party. He's been against the Egypt, Egyptian policy of the government. Why should he flee to Egypt? And Torxino says, that's a paradox. You can't possibly figure out what's going on. Why did Lehi's people flee toward Egypt? They went down, you see, the Araba, and they, they went toward in the same direction, uh, the same that Johanan took the people from Bethlehem to, to, to Egypt with, uh, took Jeremiah along with them, you know. And then, and uh, Torxiner asked, why would the good man flee to Egypt of all places when his crime was supporting Jeremiah in calling for peace with Babylonia? He favored Babylonia. He should have gone to Babylonia. He says it's simply astonishing that he fled toward Egypt instead of Babylonia. Well, Lehi's family do the same thing. Uh, and uh, then there's a mention here, this Laban, this Joush is a very important person because uh, 
Well, let's see what we say here. He represents, he's the military governor of the second most important town, the oldest, most strongest fort halfway between Egypt and Jerusalem. And that is Lachish, you see. And the records are being kept in his house, which isn't the house, it's really the guard house, which is, is his house by virtue of his office. He has to stay there, so they're dwelling quarters upstairs and so forth. And the same thing you find with Laban, as the man says here. Laban's official position resembles that of Yaush. They play a key role. Torxiner postulates Yaush must be the military governor of Lachish and possibly governor of the city. See, Laban had a very high office. He was the military governor. We were told what he was here. And he was out with the elders uh, counseling by night because the king was rather weak. See, he turned things so over sort of to, to Laban. And you see what kind of a character. Wonderful, wonderful character pictures you have in just painted with a, like Shakespeare, just with a few deft strokes and you get a darn good picture of Laban in his ceremonial arbor and then his greed and his meanness and his cruelty, etc. So you don't feel a, a moment's hesitation. Well, I must tell you that story. I can't miss that. That's my favorite one when we get to the, the Laban's demise. Uh, must be the military governor of Lagish, possibly governor of the city, yes, would probably have been housed in the region of the palace, fort, or keep. And especially, I would say, during the crisis, both in Jerusalem and Lagish, for the sake of safekeeping, if the records weren't there all the time, uh, they would be put there for safekeeping during this time of crisis. But anyway, that's where they were in both stories. They were at the, at the military, the military governor's house. And this military governor is an important thing at this time. Is the most important man in Thebes was the high priest of Ammon at Thebes, but he was a military governor. He was a high military officer at the same time in, in, in this dynasty. So these offices of military governor, high priest, and, uh, and uh, well, king, also king, you see, in, at these, but there were rival kings at Tanis and at Bubastus and at Sais and so forth. It was a mess. But the picture is characteristic here. And there, here, a mighty man apparently in command of at least 50 men and possibly even of his tens of thousands. It's interesting, we read in the Amarna letters from the earlier time when Jerusalem was being sieged that the military governor commanded 50 men in the city for uh, patrolling the streets and so forth and, and 10,000 men in the field. Well, that's the very same thing you find here in the Book of Mormon, where, uh, where, uh, well, we don't have that here, where Nephi says to the brethren, they don't say, we don't dare go back and face Laban. They said, we can't fear Laban with his 50 or with his, or even with his 10,000, he says, with his 50 men in the field and his 10,000 in the field. That's a regular, it's like a, uh, it's like the normal setup of, the, of a division or a brigade or a platoon. Today it has so many men and it's, it's very stable. It lasts for centuries necessarily here. Well, anyway, oh yes, here's the quotation. Similarly, Laban, a powerful leader in Jerusalem, a mighty man in command of at least 50 men and possibly tens of thousands, as we read in First uh, Nephi 3.31 and 4 and 1. Well, where is the king in all this? Well, in both cases, he's a weak character. Remember, he tells Jeremiah he's afraid of the people. He tells Jeremiah he's afraid of the princes. He doesn't stop the princes when they take him away from the palace prison and put him in a dungeon down in that filth so that he sinks in. Uh, incidentally, the word the Bible uses, the rags they threw in for him to step on, they said filthy rags. They threw, threw him filthy rags as he was down there in the filth. He stood on them and then they, then they put more rags under his armpits and they pulled him up. But the king, he's a weak character. See, he doesn't, he doesn't take the lead in all of it because he's scared stiff. He doesn't know. Remember, he has been installed by Nebuchadnezzar. He was the one that changed his name to Zedekiah. Uh, from, from Mataniah, and uh, he, he's responsible for the king of Babylon, and yet he's supporting, he's supporting uh, 
Necho, the, 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 the Egyptian king, who had just chased the Babylonians away, and he thought the Babylonians won't come back now, but the safe thing for me is to stick with the Egyptians, but man, you owe your job to them, to Nebuchadnezzar, and when he comes back, you're going to be in the soup. And as we see, he was. He was blinded and taken away to, taken at Rib, to Ribla and given a bad time there, blinded and taken away to Babylon. Well, and then as for Yaush, Again, see, he summarizes. We could be going through reading the letters, very interesting, but that slows us down. It'll take forever and ever. And since Torxina knows something about them, we'll trust him to say what, what, what's in them. As for Joust, the king appeals to him in everything concerning this part of the country. He consults him on everything, the same way. It's the same weak king here in the Lakish letters that it is in Lehi, uh, in the Lehi story, where the king, notice, they don't go to the king to get the, to get the, uh, the family records back, they go to Laban. And Laban would probably have enjoyed the same preference at Jerusalem as with Joush there. Uh, the archives were housed at Laban's official residence, making him a top candidate for counselor to the king, like Joush. Then the, the story of negotiating the blast plates, the bribery, the threats of violence, the attempts of violence, we're getting a, ahead of the story, but that's so beautifully reflected in the story of Win Ammon, an earlier Egyptian story from the time where Win Ammon goes in, he's wants to buy some logs for, for the temple at uh, See, there's your priest king for the temple at Thebes, and uh, he's high priest there, and he has, uh, he has letters of credit which he lost, and he'd been robbed in the harbor, and all these international troubles. Yes, he says, I want to collect the money. I was robbed in your harbor. He says, one king. The king says, well, uh, yes, it was your men who robbed me. No, it was a Syrian crew that robbed me. Ah, they gave you a Syrian crew. Did they? they knew they, they, they were out to plunder you. We can see that. And everybody, everybody's up to tricks like that. Well, the... Uh, Wenaman asked for the logs, and the interesting thing is the king says, he says, well, reverence Ammon, who is the, the ruler of the world. Notice Ammon is everything here, just as he is in the Book of Mormon. By far the commonest name in the Book of Mormon is Ammon. Well, Ammon, of course, is the king of the empire. He's always everything. Of course, we have a hymn about Ammon, though in the fa favor of Ammon residing the world's uh, bitter hate, your cause to endure, and so forth. That's one of those hymns. By Elijah Snow, it was, in fact. Well, anyway, he, he says, all right, I respect them, and I'll give you the logs when you give me the money. How do you know? He says, the records are all right here. And he has his secretary go in, and there are all the records are stacked up for hundreds of years back, and he brings them and says, look, we paid you so much for logs when you came at such and such time. Yes, we respect Ammon and all that, but you paid cold cash for the logs before. So he has to raise the cash. See, this is the, the thing is that the king had the records right in the room next to his palace. Here's a very vivid description of when, when Ammon went in. He says he was sitting, there was a big a window at the back, a beautiful scene. He said the Syrian sea was dashing on the rocks behind him as he lay uh, on, the, on the cushions on the, with the window behind him. And he goes into this airy room in the palace, but there are the records right next door. Well, this is the situation. And Nephi's successful encounter with the drunk Laban, we might as well get to the story and tell you that story anyway, and his deception of Laban's servant to gain access to the treasury in the archives. That reveals the world. Notice his night mission. He led where the spirit left him. And here we see that Zoram, the servant, had been out with the elders by night. And... Uh, Nephi, he was scared to death when he saw, when he found out who Nephi was. But Nephi finds Laban lying drunk after the meeting. He's out there dead drunk in the, in the streets. And then he wonders, with his full ceremonial armor, what's he supposed to do? And then he's, he has this long debate with himself. He should mention that, you see. But I'll get ahead of it anyway and tell the story. The time when I had to have Arab, all Arab classes here, to say, all Muslim, but they were all Arabs. <coughs> there were some Persians. 
And there were two sitting on the front row, Salim and uh, and little uh, and little oh, he's teaching down in New Mexico now. He went back. He became he, he became a physician to uh, to Gaddafi, and uh, I think the name in a second. He lived with us when he came. He was only 17 years old when he came here, and he lived at our place for a while. And uh, he was a very, very bright little guy. He knew all the Al-Nakat, the seven hanging poems by heart, and that's really something. They were written before Islam, you know. But anyway, they told the story of the murder of, of uh, cutting off the head of Laban there, which has always shocked everybody as being immoral and so forth. Well, it is. It shocked Le Nephi, too. He had to argue for an hour. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't do it. Well, anyway, see that when you get to it. These boys were, were worried. Uh, Falik, uh, Fayek Sally, his name was Fayek. Little Fayek, little Fayek Sally, and uh, Fayek and Sally, they were exchanging notes. They didn't like this. I could hear there were murmurs all over the class. They, they didn't like this story of cutting off Laban's head like that. That was wrong. So after the class, he asked me, oh, he said he raised his hand. Little Fayek said, Mr. Nibley, there's something very wrong about this story. This is not a good story. When he finds Laban lying in the street there like that, why did he wait so long to cut off his head? He said, that doesn't ring true. He said, any Arab would have done it like that, of course. <laughs> in other words, the story does ring true. Lehi, of course, I explained Lehi was a city boy, and he was rather squeamish about cutting people's heads off, <laughs> things like that. But uh, that's just the natural thing. That would have been the natural impulse. And um, the streets, of course, are pitch dark. They were not illuminated by night. These streets, he could have got away with it by moonlight, probably. We don't know that. But that's getting ahead of the story. Well, we better move along anyway, hadn't we? No, I don't know that we should. I mean, you could spend the rest of the semester on that first chapter. The situation matches that in Lakish letter 18. This letter must be forwarded from Yaus, the important man here, to the king, <coughs> must reach it, and you pass through Kiryat Yairayim, and it must be taken by night. Well, now, if the king's own messenger can't take a message from the, the high command in the field back to the king without having to do it by night, ha having to sneak it, those things are pretty, pretty bad, aren't they? They've already said, they tell us in the Lakish letters, the halfway point between them was Azika, you see. That was where the signal fires were, that they could s signal by fire direct code from Jerusalem, and they'd gone out. Azik had fallen. So the letters had to be taken personally now by hand, but they had also to be taken by night. Oh, it was tough going. Uh, I can remember no less a person than Prince Bernard rushing in in the middle of the night, about 2 o'clock in the morning, in a rainy night in, in Holland there at Zone, and he dashed in on his motorcycle. He was a very dashing person. He rather enjoyed this, uh, to deliver some messages. It was Prince Bernard himself at the headquarters. <coughs> well, but little kids would carry them, mostly. And this is what we have here with the... Lehi's son takes Laban's servant with them, that the Jews might not know concerning our flight, lest these preserve, uh, pursue us and destroy us. Remember, they tried to, to pursue them, too, and they, and they lost them. <coughs> and as it told us before, the prophet Uriah was running away, being chased by the police. Uh, they did catch up to him. See, they got extradition, took him out of Egypt, and took him back and to the palace. Even so, we see the Lakish letters, a prophet fleeing from his home and his friends, a prophet wanted by the military authorities." Unquote. The military correspondence of the Lakish letters with its grim suspicions and disloyalty, the double-dealing, fervid denials, charges and investigation. You see uh, this Yehoshiah uh, at uh, Yarim, 
uh, at uh, Arim, he denied anything. He hadn't been guilty of it at all, but somebody had to be suspected. Somebody was opening the mail. Somebody helped the prophet escape and so forth. Who was it? Charges, denials. It may have been Jaws himself who was a friend of Uriah. You see? So there's all sorts of intrigue here. Military correspondence, lakeish letters with grim suspicion of double-dealing reports reminding one of the, of the later Bar Kokhba letters. We get them original letters from a much later time, but the same place, same situation. We'll mention them the next time. Uh, now, Torxina suggests, quote, that the prophet's warning letter could have been sent while the prophet was still near his town through a little boy, most suited as unsuspecting messengers. He remarks little boys are used for that in the time of David. In 2 Samuel, there are a couple of passages. He says such small boys are used also today in Palestine, often for white responsible missions. And they did bring information, all kinds of information, during that unfortunate operation market garden in Holland at Arnhem, you see. But the, uh, the best ones to bring the information were these little Dutch kids. They got a thrill out of it. It was really exciting to bring it. And they would bring the, the message, you see. Now, the message the kid was, name was uh, Nedabyahu. Very interesting name, Nedabyahu, because he is mentioned in, in, the, uh, in Chronicles 3 and 18. See, we get back, we're not in Book of Jeremiah, we're now in Chronicles, which were the Chronicles of the events of the kingdom, 3 and 18, where uh, this Nedabyahu is the grandson of King Jehoiakim. And Torxina says, possibly even probable that he is the very one named here. He's the king's own grandson bearing letters from the prophet. That's the question that goes on here. This is in letter three. He delivered the letter from the prophet to one Shalom, warning him of the danger he was in. There's more warnings, more prophets delivered by this Nebajahu was the Nekad of the king. The exact meaning of Nekad, we're told, is unfortunately not definitely established, but it simply means offspring or descendant. And he figures now, with the new chronology, he probably was Zedekiah's grandnephew or even grandson. The Hebrew Neged may certainly be used at least for grandnephew as well as for grandson. By an interesting coincidence, which he does not mention, uh, the word used for the Neked in the Septuagint, which is actually 300 years older than any Hebrew Bible uh, version we have of it, that's the Greek version of it. It's translated in Alexandria long before, much older than any of our Hebrew texts. It, it calls him, this calls this uh, little boy, the seed of Zedekiah. And that's what the Book of Mormon calls him, the seed of Zedekiah. The Book of Mormon calls him the very same thing. Well, who was he? Nebadiah, and then we're quoting this Nebadiah. Might as well put his name down. Uh, yeah, Nebadiah. Nabid. Servant of God. Nebadiah, the, uh, whose title may equally well mean the grandson, that is, as a naked NKD, of, may equally mean the grandson of Jehoiakim or the grandnephew of Zedekiah. He was one or the other, anyway. Anyway, he was quite young. And he says one would prefer the age of 10 to 13 to that of 5. He could have been, according to chronology, could have been 5 years old, and quite little kids would carry them the written message. But 10 to 13 has a better chance of getting through, I think. Uh, I wouldn't trust a five-year-old <laughs> for a really dangerous mission, would you? Uh, was the grandson, uh, grandnephew of Zedekiah at 10 to 13, carrying dangerous letters between the towns and camps for the prophet's people. And since he's camping, carrying the people, letters to the prophet's people, and the letters are warning them to decamp and get out, that's what the main purpose of the letters is. Naturally, he would be picked up to the by the last uh, group. It seems like he's being treasonable to the royal family, doesn't it? 
He's on Jeremiah's side. He's delivering letters to the people, which are to the effect that they clear out. Well, what would happen when they learned that the royal family had been captured and taken away, which is what happens to you while he was out among the, the village, out among the settlements. When news reached him that the royal family would be wiped out, the people he was delivering letters to, only one course survived, that's take the kid with him and, and get out themselves. If they were going, they take him with him. You're not going back to Jerusalem there because your family's in the, in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. They're, they're taking them up to Riblah. They're going to kill them all. And so don't, don't join your brothers. They didn't know that, but it was dangerous. They'd, they'd already been taken. This sort of situation turns up all the time. One sees it. I can tell you the most remarkable thing that happened. This actually happened. Yeah, I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, at Carantan, see the first town to fall in Normandy was Carantan, and uh, they went through Carantan the first day, the first day it fell. Oh, it was a mess, it didn't fill because they immediately retook it again. We went on a little spit of land out there along a canal. There was a factory overlooking, and the, we saw somebody looking out the window of the factory, and uh, Major Den, he sent somebody to find out who it was. He said, there's a spy up there, we'll have to go get him. And they brought him down, <coughs> and uh, there he was in the factory looking out, and he was a German. This was in Holland. So the Major said, Major Dennehy, said to uh, David Bernays, a little fiery little Jew, he won a silver star with two clusters. Uh, he was a little short fellow, but he was no friend of the Nazis. He says, take him out and shoot him. So he was going to do it. He took him out. He was a very close friend of mine. We, we were in the same little tent there. Uh, David Bernays was. He took him out and they came to a, a little ditch, a drainage ditch. And he says, Genzi Bedad Flus, step over the ditch there, he says. The man says, you speak German? Yes. To make conversation, he says, where did you come from? He says, I come from Maximilianzau. Maximilianzau, well, that's just a little place. There was a, a celluloid factory there. It was on the Rhine. They used to have the logs from the celluloid factory. And uh, from, uh, from Maximilianzau, it was nothing but a big but a celluloid factory. He said, that's all it was. He says, yes. Did you know Herr Bernays? He says, he was my father. Well, it turns out this man he was about to shoot was the closest friend. He was the manager for his father. He had managed the factory. He was the one that made it possible for the family to escape from Germany and get to New York. See? It was this man who was just about to shoot him when he found out he was my father. They threw themselves and he said, well, this must be little David. There you are. He was just about to shoot him. So these things do happen. They're very, very moving. And uh, that's something. But Dave Bernays was quite the character. But this man, of course, then immediately, he became a valuable source of information <laughs> instead of public <laughs> you, you can't waste that, you know. <clears throat> well then, so this is what happened. And time is getting long here. The, uh, oh, now. This leads us now to the, well, well, about Munich. We've got to get Munich here. This uh, Nebadiah. Will you dispute now, in Helaman, we read here, Helaman 8 and 20, will you dispute that Jerusalem was destroyed? Will you say that the sons of Zedekiah were not slain, all except it were Mulech? Yea, do you not behold that the seed of Zedekiah are with us, and they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem? So one crowd escaped, they were the Mulekites. And they, we know now from the Lakish letters, you see that people were escaping. This, uh, this is 10 years, 12 years now after Lehi. So, oh, that's another thing. We have to notice the timing of this. Torxino says the date this happened for this episode was between 590 and 588. What's a good round number between 590 and 588? 
I think it's five, five eighty-nine, don't you? <laughs> five ninety, five eighty-eight, and this would be five eighty-nine. Now, five eighty-nine was exactly eleven years after Lehi left Jerusalem, and we're told in the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Mormon, that the Mulekites left Jerusalem eleven years after Nephi, Lehi did. That figures very closely, doesn't it? Yes, from the company escaped from the land of Jerusalem, bearing with them the youngest son of Zedekiah, the only member of the family not put to death when Jerusalem was taken. From the descendants of these people in the New World, the Nephites learned that Jerusalem actually did fall as is prophesied. And remember, the Mulekites figure in the Book of Mormon. They're more important than the Nephites, actually. Zarahemla wasn't a Nephite city at all. It was a Mulekite city. Remember, Mosiah was privileged, was voted king when he came there because of his great ability and so forth. But it was always a Mulekite city, and we're told the Mulekites were far more numerous than the Nephites at all times. And the two of them together weren't half as numerous as the Lamanites. So we're going to have some very interesting mixtures here. They were dealing with each other all the time, too. We tend so to oversimplify the Book of Mormon. And... Uh, they learned, will you dispute that Jerusalem was destroyed? Will you say that the sons of Zedekiah were not slain except it were Mulek? Yea, and do you not behold the seed of Zedekiah that are with us, that they may be driven out of the land? And now, nowhere we told that Music was the leader of the community. Why did, did they bear his name? There was a Mulek, you see, and they were called the Mulekites. This would be apparently, indeed, in, because of his apparent youth, this would be unlikely. But as the sole survivor of the royal family, naturally, he would be the most distinguished member of the troop. That would be Mulek, the little king. But the name is very interesting. They don't call themselves the king people. They call themselves the Mulekite people. Uh, Mulek. Oh, my writing here is terrible. Mulek. And this would be Maliki. Well, we're going to put Mulekites here. That's the way we do it. What's the matter here? I get so nervous. Mu-like. That's right. You don't make it mu-like. I was going to write mu-like. Yeah. Mu-like. That's the, that's the diminutives. The word is mu-like. M's are hard to write. That's the word for king. Uh, malik. You know the word malik. You see all that time. Malikun. Uh, you see the word malik all the time. That's, that means king. But mu means little king. It's an affectionate term. It means our little king. It means dear little king. Cutie king. Uh, it's, uh, no, and this is terribly the way I've written it. That's what happens when you get too darn nervous, doesn't it? Uh, usually I have a very smooth snide here. Uh, but won't, that won't do, but that was Mulek. Well, that's the point, you see, they, the name is Mulek. It's not, uh, we have the, the new uh, Malik and Malachites and Malachians and, and uh, all sorts of people in the Book of Mormon, but only one Mulekites. And this Mulekites say that's only a diminutive, but the word occurs very often, because it's very often anyway. It means a possessor, it means a king, it means a leader, and this sort of thing. So, the name tells us everything, I say here. Mulek is not found anywhere in the Bible, but anybody who's had first-year Arabic knows that a diminutive is, takes the form Fu'ail. So, Mulek, uh, Malik the king, would be Mulek, or Mulek. And the people who belong, anyone who belongs to a society or is a follower is an Iya Mulekia which is always translated in the Bible as Mulekite. It would be Mulekite, I mean, if it was so. So they call themselves Mulekites because they were the people with the little king in there. They were, they were proud of him. They don't give him credit for being king or anything like that, but they call him little king. Uh, so we get this picture very vividly drawn. I see the time is almost up now, but this takes us immediately, directly, however, to uh, another batch of documents that are much more extensive and equally 
have equal importance for the Book of Mormon. You think coming 600 years after this that the, that the Dead Sea Scrolls wouldn't be so important. Well, don't fool yourself. There we find we're absolutely loaded in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're not going to take too much time with them. These were found in these, uh, in 19, well, 1961 or so. See, they've been finding these uh, Dead Sea Scrolls all along. The same thing happened when Jerusalem fell to the Romans. See, the point is the people all flee. They go out into the desert. They hide in the caves. And uh, not, we, it's not just at Qumran that you find these things. It is all the entire length and down to the south and so forth. And here we find a tremendous batch of letters from the cave of letters that gives us all the business doings that were going on, how the people bought and sold their farms and so forth, and the legal matters, the court matters. There was a rich woman named Babata, and uh, she was a mean one, but she got herself terribly rich. She would claim anything, claiming farms here and there. But we see the rich in the lands of their inheritance and their dealings with each other and so forth. And uh, again, the charges of, of treason and the like that go on. No, we won't have time for this now. We'll mention some of this the next time because it's important. And if it weren't so uh, beginning to sound so familiar, we wouldn't bother about it. But alas, well, and if it weren't for the fact that the Book of Mormon, we're told that this is meant for us and we better read it. Uh, and this comes to you, O oh, you Gentiles, that you may have been wiser than we have been. So we better see what they were up to and what happened to them. Well, we know what happened to them. But now we're being told why. But now these letters show how the Book of Mormon, how beautifully documented, and how, I say, read that first chapter, how he gets, says everything without, uh, it, it is a, an epitome. It's an abridgment. It's an abridgment. But it hits all the high points. It touches all the bases and gives us these character pictures. Oh, my. That's the way it is.